Thank you. Thank you, Ian. And uh, good evening. It's lovely to see you. Now, I could do with some help at the beginning of the service. Uh, I wonder if there are any volunteers. Oh, yeah, okay. Uh, George, do you want to come out? That'd be great. I've got, I'd like you to do something for me. Okay, so come out. Come out here. Okay. And just hold this. There you are. There you are. Okay, just hold that there. And I'd like you to, I'd like you to pretend that it's my birthday. Okay. And give those chocolates to me as a present and say something nice. Happy birthday, Phil. You're amazing. Now, sorry, George, for ignoring that, but what was wrong with my reaction just then? What was wrong? Yeah, go on, Caleb, what was wrong? I didn't say thank you, and I wasn't nice to him. Exactly. In other words, thank you, George, you can have a chocolate for your, for your kind... Oh, he can't. Oh, no, he can't. You can give it to your sister. Yeah. You can, you can give it to your sister. Okay, oh, how lovely. Well done. He's been much nicer than I was. That's right. You see, what was the point, what was the point there? Well, you can see it on the, on the back of your handout. Um, Caleb summarised it nicely for us. I put it a slightly different way. I took the gift and I ignored the giver. I took the gift and I ignored the giver, didn't I? There was George giving me a lovely gift. I didn't even say thank you. I turned my back on him. I took what he had to give me and I ate it. <clears throat> I'm still trying to eat it. It's very tasty. I loved the gift. I valued the gift. I enjoyed the gift. I ignored the giver. And you see, until Haggai prophesied to the people in his day in Jerusalem, this is how the people had treated God for the previous 15 years or so. They had taken the things that he had given them and they'd ignored him, the giver. Look on the screen. There's a diagram, hopefully, that might appear. You see, this is how it ought to have worked. God, the maker of everything, gives gifts to his people and the people return thanks and praise to the God who gave them to him. But this is how it happened with, in Haggai's day. It had been short-circuited. Okay? There's a short circuit there, if you know what that is. All right? the, the, the circuit right, has become shortened because the people, instead of returning thanks and praise to God, well, they were just going back to the gifts, enjoying the gifts, enjoying living in the land, panelling their own homes instead of building the temple. And that's what we've seen, isn't it, over the past few weeks as well. And how is it that they had ignored God? How had they cut him out of the picture? Well, they had cut him out of the picture by failing to build the temple. Because the temple was God's dwelling place amongst his people. It was the way that he could be with them and amongst them. Their failure to build it was at best ignoring God and at worst saying to him, we don't want you. We don't want you. But now... But now, the 24th day of the ninth month, a milestone has been reached. A milestone in the shape of a foundation stone. For on this day of prophecy, it would seem that the people have rededicated their building efforts to the Lord. I wonder if you just look down with me at verse 18 and try and see this. What does verse 18 say? It says, from this day on, from this 24th day of the ninth month, the same day that the prophecy comes in verse 10, Give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. When was the foundation laid? When was the foundation of the temple laid? Well, in Ezra, we get an account of the foundation of the Lord's temple being laid in 538 BC or so, okay, about 18 years before this prophecy here in 520. But it wasn't uncommon for the time for temples to be rededicated or reconsecrated to 
the Lord and multiple times. And so I think it's a better and a, a more straightforward understanding of this passage if we see here this day, the 24th day of the ninth month, as being the day when the people finally got their building materials in order, collected all the wood from the hillsides, got all their tools ready, and it's only a couple of months after the last prophecy, and now started to build and dedicated this to the Lord, laid some, some kind of a foundation stone. They're marking the foundation stone. It seems an appropriate time to do it. And as they do that, this oracle from the Lord comes through Haggai. And it's an invitation to look back to see where the people have come from and to look forward to see what would come next. That's often what happens, isn't it, at milestone moments. People look back and they look forward. 50th birthday, 60th birthday, 70th birthdays, anniversaries, the best fathers of the bride speeches, don't they? They reminisce on good times of old and they look forward with anticipation to what is to come. But here at this milestone moment, Haggai looks back and he doesn't like what he sees. And he looks forward too. So first we're going to see uh, God, uh, through the prophet Haggai, an invitation to look back and see that ignoring God, short-circuiting that loop, brought frustration and curse. Am I booming a bit? Do I need to go down just a tad? Perhaps, Chris, thank you very much. Now, if you remember, back in chapter 1, Haggai had confronted the people with the fact of the ruined temple, and he'd helped them to join the dots from the ruin that lay in their midst and the drought that had blighted the land. He uses a clever wordplay. If we were readers of Hebrew, we'd see it straight away. He says, the Harev caused the Horev, right? The ruins, the Harev, caused the drought, the Horev. It would, have, it, would, it would spring out to us if we were reading it in the original language. And what we have here in these verses, as Haggai invites us to look back, is a reminder of those times for the people. We see their experience and God's explanation for that experience. So their experience is, is given us first in verses 16 and 17. Let me read them again for us. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. You see, their, their experience was one of extreme frustration and lack. Frustration because there wasn't as much of what they wanted or uh, enough of it when they wanted it. Lack because even what they had was blighted. It was growing mouldy with mildew and destroyed with hail. You know that really disappointing feeling you get when you pull the peanut butter jar or whatever it might be out of the cupboard and uh, it looks like it's full because the side of the jar is smeared with paste and you open the lid and you look in and uh there's just a tiny bit down at the bottom, only enough for half a slice of toast, and you wanted a whole slice. It's a little bit like that. They go to the wine vat, and there's only 10 measures, not the 20 they're expecting. Uh, I need another, another volunteer at this point. Um, oh, Finley, your hand was Stephanie first. Come on, have you come, Finley? Okay. Finley, I've, I've got here a brand new box of chocolates for you. Would you like it? Fantastic. Okay, just be careful, it's quite heavy. Oh, what's, what's, what's the problem? It's not quite empty, is it? Have a look. What's in there? What? One chocolate. One chocolate. How disappointing. Yeah, have you ever done that? Have you gone to a box of chocolates and thought you might get a whole box and oh, there's just one or two left in the bottom? 
It's so disappointing, isn't it? Yeah, I'm sorry. Well, at least you can keep that one if you like. Okay. It's, a, it's, an, eclair. it's an eclair as well, and I think they're the worst. Although your, your brother tells me they're the best, so I don't know. This, this box of chocolates has done me very well today, by the way. It's served me well. Thank you, Claire, who gave it to me. Very good. <laughs> you see, up the stakes in those two silly examples, uh, and think of the food that you are looking for is required for your very existence, and multiply the amounts so that we're not talking about a jar or a box, but we're talking about a vat. And this is the experience of the Israelites. And remember the surprise that we saw in chapter 1, which we see hinted at in verse 17. Where, who, who's done this? God says, verse 17, I struck, I struck the mildew and the drought and the hail and the blight, which brings this about. It's all from his hand. This is their experience. Well, how is it to be explained? Well, look at verses 11 to 14, and this is um, the explanation that comes first of all. Verse 11, there's a question that Haggai is told to go and ask the priests. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment, that's meat that has been blessed by the priests, made holy, made right to eat, um, does it become, sorry, and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? Does that other food become consecrated? Now this is like a question you know, for a, a priest, a dummy questions for priests, right? It's an obvious question and an obvious answer. And the obvious answer is no. Holy food does not make other food holy if that holy food touches the other dirty food. That's not how it works. It's not that how it works. It's like this, and here's a question for you kids, okay? You think about this. If you wash your hands really, really, really well, okay, they're super clean, and then you rub your clean hands all over your filthy dirty legs, does it make your filthy, dirty legs clean? No. Okay, you might have tried it, but it doesn't work, does it? Okay? Your hands become dirty instead. That's the way it works. And that's how the Lord continues, isn't he, in this little enacted kind of um, scene. If a person, verse 13, has touched a dead body and become, un um, and become defiled, become unclean, if they then touch some of those other foodstuffs, bread or stew, wine, olive oil or other food, do they become unclean? You bet they will. Yeah. It's like saying, again, if you go and smear your hand in mud and then go and take in the clean washing off the washing line to be helpful for mum or dad, will the clean washing be dirty? Yes, you bet it will. Of course it will. Okay? Don't try that one at home, uh, by the way. You see, from these rather obvious day-to-day -day scenarios for a Jew of the 6th century... The Lord moves to the incisive application, verse 14. Look at verse 14. This is the point. Okay, those, those are ordinary, everyday examples that people of the time would have understood straight away. No, of course, dirty doesn't make, or, or clean doesn't make other things clean. Of course, dirty makes other things dirty. Okay? Here's the incisive application, verse 14. Then Haggai said, So it is with this people and this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. Where's the there? Well, at the temple, of course. The temple site. That's where. And the explanation given in these verses push the imagery a bit further, don't they, of an explanation of why these things are happening, more than just curses for a disobedient nation. We looked at that in chapter 1. Because the explanation given here is that the Lord's unfinished temple is like a rotting corpse at the centre of the city. 
The Lord's unfinished temple is like a rotting corpse at the centre of Jerusalem. And so it's poisoning everything else that their people come to do. Last summer we were away for the May half term and we came back and there was a bad smell in the garden. And eventually I discovered it, a dead pigeon. Dead pigeons, I didn't realise they could smell so bad. And you turned it over and saw the maggots. And then you realised why it stank. Oh, I don't know if you've ever actually experienced a rotten egg. We did in our family just two weeks ago. We cracked an egg in the pan and poof, my word. Okay, you don't ever have to worry whether the eggs are off or not because you'll know if they're off. Goodness me. The stench, it poisons everything in the room. And you see here, Haggai makes this comparison with the temple. The unfinished temple is like a rotting corpse in the centre of Jerusalem and the neglect the people have shown to that temple, to rebuilding it, shows how their hearts are cold towards God. And the polluting effect of this rotting corpse is affecting everything in their lives. The work of their hands and the worship that they bring to the Lord too. Look, you see that, don't you, in, in the end of verse 14. Whatever they do and whatever they offer there is defiled. And it does so because of what it says about the people and their relationship with God. They'd lived in Jerusalem for 15 to 18 years or so, and they hadn't built the temple when they could have. And the temple was God's dwelling place on earth, a point of contact between God and his people. And so it's as though the people are saying to God, we don't actually want you. I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to say in verse 17, and yet you did not return to me, says the Lord, and yet you did not want me. You could, you could think of it like that. God is saying to his people, you didn't want me. You're just cutting me out of the loop, short-circuiting in your lives. They wanted the gifts, but not the giver. They've been bringing sacrifices. We take it from verse 14. They're offering things to an open-air altar, perhaps, on the site of the temple. That'll be good enough. Maybe it'll unlock this blessing thing, you know. But it's just transactional. They don't really want God, because if they really wanted God, they'd have built his, built his temple. They just want the blessings that he was to give. Now, we don't live in the nation-state of Israel anymore. But here's the point of principle that we could take from this reminiscing on the past. And it's this, that it's possible to live as God's people and yet ignore God. It's possible to live with a horizontal view only and focus our attention on the gifts we enjoy and think that we're being faithful followers of God, but actually our view is only like this, only on the things that we have and enjoy. We can get stuck in that short-circuited loop, if you put that back up, Chris, of enjoying gifts, and many of us enjoy wonderful gifts, don't we, from the Lord. We live in comfortable houses and have you know, decent cars and can go on holiday and all the rest of it. And we just short-circuit the loop all the time. In fact, we're functional atheists. Because do we ever actually say thank you to God? Do we ever actually return praise and glory to him? What would happen if those gifts stop? Would we direct our arrow back to God? Or would we not? The scary thought, isn't it, is that God might leave us in this short-circuited loop, constantly spinning around without reference to him. That's how so many of our friends and neighbours around us in the town here live, without reference to God in his world, going round and round and round and round. And the call for us, if we find ourselves in that position, is to reconnect the circuit to redirect that arrow from the side to the top, to return to God, 
as he invites us to, to honour him in our lives and in the way we live. And we'll think a bit more about that at the end. Thank you, Chris. But that's Haggai, the Lord, through Haggai, looking back, looking back and seeing uh, that to uh, ignore God brings frustration and curse. And that was the people's experience. But mercifully, that's not where the people stay. They have now returned to God. That milestone has been met. The foundation has been laid. And so Haggai turns to looking forward. And his message in verses 18 and 19 is is shorter, to some extent simpler. Honouring God by building the temple will bring blessing. You see, the people have started to build the temple, and in so doing, they've returned to God in some measure. They've signalled their intention to live with God in their midst. Remember verse 18. This day, the foundation of the temple, give careful thought to this day, says Haggai, for from verse 19b, from this day on, I will bless you. What will that blessing look like for the people? Well, just as the drought had come and affected the crops in the field, so now with the heart of the people once more in the right place, there's a promise of agricultural abundance, isn't there? Verse 19 speaks of that, uh, of that plentifulness, right, that God will promise as part of his blessing. Look down there. Is there any seed left in the barn? Asks God. Now this prophecy was given in December. Okay, we know that because it's dated. And so uh, the planting season had long since occurred. So what does it mean when God says, is there any, yet any seed left in the barn? What I think is this. The best way to understand this question is to see it as, as a question of whether the seed has all been planted or not. Because... Is it, is, it, has it yet, is it all gone, basically you're saying? Is there yet any seed left in the barn? There's none left, right? It's December. If there's any seed left in the barn, they've gone wrong because they need to have planted it. So it's out there in the fields. So in that question hangs the possible return of that seed, if you like, in the harvest that will be reaped. Surely the barn will be full again of the harvest as God lifts the blight and mildew and hail and drought. See in the rest of the verse too, the the implicit promise of fruitfulness. What does God say? Until now. Well, what's going to happen now? But until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. Until now, they haven't borne fruit. But from this day, I will bless you. I will bless you. The rotting corpse in their midst is being built back to life. And if you like, it unblocks the channel of God's blessing to the people. The milestone is the foundation stone. The people look back and see the consequences of ignoring God and they look forward to see the promise of blessing to come. How are we to understand this for ourselves? This is the word of of the Lord through the prophet Haggai to his people two and a half thousand years ago, I think 2,543, wasn't it? I calculated a few weeks ago. Okay, that's what the word to them in their situation. What about to us? Well, we we must remember that this is operating in a different context, under the old covenant, whereby there was explicit connection between the faithfulness and obedience of the people and the literal fruitfulness and material blessing of the land. And that covenant is no longer exactly how God relates to his people. We're no longer living in national Israel with kings established by God, with prophets and priests ruling. 
So we shouldn't see the promise of material and agricultural blessing given here to the people in Haggai's day as a promise to us, if only we would be faithful. That's one way that some people do go. Some people might take this passage and they'd stand up and, and in the words of one American prosperity gospel preacher, I believe God wants you to prosper in your health, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, in your career. Now we hear that and we think, yeah, I think God does want us to prosper in those things. Except what's being preached and taught there is the automatic connection between faith in God and material prosperity. Such that if you have faith, you will automatically prosper in all those other areas. And if you do not prosper, it must be because you don't have faith or you don't have enough faith. And that's a perversion of the true gospel. Because what it does, amongst many other things, is introduce the idea of works into the gospel. That if only my faith is better or stronger or harder or faster then God will bless me more and more and more and I'll have a bigger house and a better car. Actually, you might have noticed that I titled this evening's message God's Undeserved Blessing. Because if we think about it, even for the people in Haggai's day, that blessing is totally undeserved for the people, isn't it? I mean, okay, they start to build God's temple. But the fact is that, that God is willing to come and live in their midst and that, at all, that fact in, its, in and of itself is a marker of grace because they don't deserve God to come and live in their midst. And so you see, friends, if that's the case for, God, for, the, for the Old Testament people of God, how much more certainly can we say that for us now? You see, just as the people of Haggai's day laid a foundation stone to unblock the Lord's blessing to them, we too have a foundation stone. Or, in the words of the New Testament, we might say it's a cornerstone, if you like, on whom our holy building, our temple, this church, and every Christian church in this world is built. Except this stone has been laid not by human hands, but by grace, from first to last, by God. Let me read to you a few verses from Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 19 to 22. Paul is speaking about uh, the Ephesian believers and and their status as the church. Consequently, he says, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So you see, here is God's undeserved blessing for us when we come to think about building the temple. He even laid the foundation for us and the cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the cornerstone, Christ Jesus himself. And it's that cornerstone that unblocks God's blessing to his people. Not anything that we do, but all that Christ has done. How is that blessing experienced by us now in our lives? Should we be looking for bigger houses and faster cars? Well, as we saw last week, the certainty of true riches and true glory lie in the future, not the pleasant, present. So ultimately, we can see this fulfillment of verse 19 into us. From this day on, I will bless you. 
in future spiritual terms, a future of glory and riches and peace that all those who trust in Jesus have to look forward to. You see, as we return to God who made us in repentance and faith, we can be sure that he will bless us. Not necessarily material blessings. Not necessarily uh, health in the here and now. But in the future? Well, you can bet your bottom dollar on it. This is why Jesus came and died and rose again to secure a perfect future for his people, to forgive them and welcome them into his house, a house of many rooms and abundant treasure. So we should find the fulfillment of this promise in the future. And yet, there is a sense, is there not, in which the Christian life, from point of conversion onwards, is a life of blessing, a blessed life. Which of us would say that we are not blessed, even if we don't feel it all the time, but we're not blessed in some way or measure? We have the blessing of conscience cleansed, of death defeated, of life without end. We have the blessing of relationship with our creator, access to him in prayer. We have the blessing of his word, hearing him speak to us. We have the blessing of other people, other Christians to walk alongside, so that even if being a Christian means we have to give up stuff in our lives, we find ourselves that in the words of Jesus, in a community that in the words of Jesus will provide a hundredfold for us. If you believe in Jesus, then you are blessed. Blessed beyond that which you can only imagine. And the lesson from this passage, I think, is that the extent to which we, we know and experience that blessing in our spiritual lives today is related to the extent to which we honour God and put his gifts in their right place. The foundation stone has already been laid for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is the cornerstone, and now we are being built into him. And so as we are built into Jesus, if we are to know the blessing that God promises his people here, we must avail ourselves of the means of grace that he has given us. His word, prayer, the Lord's Supper together, each other as a church. You see, we will only know the blessing of heaven. Let me give you some examples here. We'll only know the blessing of heaven if we spend more time thinking about eternity and less about retirement. We'll only know the blessing in the here and now of relationship with God if we spend more time talking to him than we do scrolling the internet. We'll only know the blessing of his leading and teaching and guiding us in his word if we spend serious time listening to it. We'll only experience the blessedness of church family to the extent that we commit to each other and share with each other. See, the Christian life is a blessed life. God wants it to be that. And the blessing is all there. From this day on, I will bless you, says the Lord. We can be sure of it, for Christ Jesus is our cornerstone. And he died that we might be blessed. An undeserved blessing. Starting now, stretching into eternity. Well, we have an opportunity now to bless his name through the words of our uh, last song, Blessed Be Your Name. So as uh, the music starts,